Hello and welcome to Tape Notes, the podcast that looks behind the scenes at the magic of recording and producing music. Every episode we'll be reuniting an artist and producer and talking through some of the highlights from their collaboration in the studio. So join us as we lift the lid on the creative process and the inner workings of music production to see what lies beneath. Hello, I'm John Kennedy, and joining me for this episode of Tape Notes are Biffy Clyro and producer Rich Costi to talk about how they recorded and produced the album A Celebration of Endings. Biffy Clyro are an alternative rock band from Scotland, consisting of guitarist and lead vocalist Simon Neal, bassist James Johnston and drummer Ben Johnston. Assembling as teenagers in Kilmarnock in 1995, the band began attracting attention on the Glasgow music scene for their unique combination of rhythmic prog rock, grunge and hardcore. Their debut album, Black and Sky, produced by Chris Shelton, was released on Beggar's Banquet Records in 2002 and certified silver in the UK. Each subsequent album brought more success, with their fourth album, Puzzle, reaching number two in the UK charts and their fifth, Only Revolutions, getting nominated for the 2010 Mercury Prize. Since then, Biffy Clyro have continued to push the boundaries of rock, releasing three further albums, all of which have reached number one in the UK, earning countless nominations for Best British Band and topping the bill at some of the biggest festivals in the world. Their latest venture, A Celebration of Endings, continues to push their music in new directions, combining their playfully chaotic, dynamic and frenzied rock riffage with a taste of pop and a 30-piece orchestra. Rich Costi is a Grammy Award-winning record producer, mixer and engineer from California whose work spans hip-hop and electronica to rock and indie. Rich began honing his craft having studied at Berklee College of Music, taking on various studio roles alongside long-term collaborator, producer and composer John Bryan. Following a stint working as head engineer at Philip Glass's Looking Glass studio, Rich relocated to Los Angeles, where his work on Fiona Apple's debut album attracted the attention of producer Rick Rubin, leading to mixing credits on albums from Audio Slave and Rage Against the Machine. In 2003, Rich was recruited by Muse to produce their third album, Absolution, which saw global success, earning praise for its vast yet superbly balanced approach to rock. Since then, he has produced and mixed countless number one records, bringing to life albums with artists including Franz Ferdinand, Interpol, Birdie, Arctic Monkeys, Sigur Ross, The Killers and Sam Fender, among many others, as well as winning two Grammy Awards for his work on Foo Fighters, Echo Silence, Patience and Grace and Muse's fifth album, Drones. Today, once again due to the Covid lockdown, I'm at home in Morden, South London, Simon is at home in Scotland and Rich joins us from Southern Vermont. Unfortunately, technology let us down this time and the sound quality of Simon's mic isn't up to our usual standards. But we're sure you'll enjoy the conversation all the same. And what better way to start than by hearing something from the record? This is The Champ. A virtual dream in a virtual life. life. I'm in love with the older kind. Yeah. Biblical truth in a cynical light. Don't give me that tight bullshit Who says it's do or die, well I do You got every little thing that you want You took every little thing that you'd always needed more You got every little thing that it takes, champ Don't theorize, don't criticize Just get the fuck out of my face Cause we are the source It is The Champ by Biffy Clyro from A Celebration of Endings, introducing this episode with Rich Costi, 
and Simon Neal from the band in different parts of the world. So, Rich, you go first. Where are you now? I'm currently in southern Vermont at a studio called Guilford Sound. So this is a new setup for you, is that right? It is, yeah. I've been in Los Angeles for 10 years and uh, felt like a good time to go out and see the countryside. And there's an amazing residential place that had been built here about four years ago and the timing was just perfect. So yeah, I'm camped out here. So moving across to the other coast of the United States and away from where you have been working with Simon Neal in the past. So Simon, where are you? You're in, back home in Bonnie, Scotland. Yep, I've been ensconced in the Tartan land for the last six months. I miss being in the studio, that's for sure. But yeah, it's been fine. It's been fine. Thank you yeah. playing home is home. Well, it's great because thanks to technology, we're able to do an episode of Take Notes where we're going to unpick the recording of this new album. And I think the first song we're going to look at is North of No South. So, I mean, where should we start? Where's the best place to start with this? For me, this is the kind of song that is one of the reasons that we love working with Rich and you can kind of avert your eyes here, Rich, I'm going to big you up. Um, but <laughs> the way Rich hears music and specifically rock music is he wants to take it down a different path. So with this song, the demo version of this song was very much quite a muscly kind of three-piece rock band. And I'll always remember the first day we started work on it, Like Rich said he wanted to make it as light on its feet as it could possibly be. Now, we didn't quite know how that was going to be achieved at the start. At the start of Neither the did I, yeah. <laughs> and, and in fact, it, it, took a, it took a lot of work. We revisited the song a lot, which we'll discuss. But Rich was so right. I wanted to build it up into this like kind of monstrous, muscular kind of rock song. And Rich was like, let's keep it like almost thin. It's like the guitar should be kind of wafer thin and, and let the beats, let the bounce of the song do the heavy lifting. So yeah, so it, this was the first song for me when we attacked it in the studio. It was like, we have our direction for this record. It was the first one where the guitar sounded incredible. The drums really came together, adding in the beats and things. I'm not sure if you feel a similar thing about North and No South, Rich. Or... Yeah, I mean, for me, the the whole thing hung on the guitar riff that kicks off the song. Like, as soon as I heard you play that, I felt like... I could just see where everything needed to go and that there was a certain tone in particular that I was after because I thought that was one of the greatest riffs. And if you remember, we recut the guitar, fuck, I don't even remember how many times because there was probably the first pass was fine, but there was just something that I kept hearing and we kept going back and going back because we were chasing something, you know? And it was so worth it, John, because... I can sometimes be a little lazy in the studio and be like, oh, listen, it sounds great. You know, we've got all the parts are correct. And that, as I say, that's where Rich's expertise is so priceless because he was hearing something that none of the rest of us were hearing. And it sounded great, but you knew there was another 5% to get out of that guitar. And especially you wanted it in the Strat, which is, right. is obviously the biffy sound. But the biggest part of that, I think, was after messing around for probably, you know, over the course of a few weeks, we ended up using one microphone and <laughs> one amp. And it was for this song, wasn't it, Rich? It was this song yeah. in particular. And I remember Rich, like, putting the microphone in the bathroom. He's putting it under around the back of the amp. You know, <laughs> we're putting it in the next room. And somehow Rich managed to wangle it. So it was one of the most simplistic setups we've ever had but yet one of my favourite guitar tones that I've ever had on a record. Wow, amazing. So can we hear that original demo that you would have played, Rich, then? Yeah, this is the band in the rehearsal in Scotland. Do you want to describe the scene? 
Simon, of your rehearsal? Yes, it is. A, it, we're normally dressed with scarves and hats. We go in there. The oppressive nature of it makes the music, the juices flow. So, yeah, this will sound a little colder, a little less sure of itself. But, but why is it cold? Why were you dressed like that? That's the key part. We, we don't have any heating. We're on a farm. There's no heating. <laughs> uh, there's cows next door. It needs to be cool for the cows and for the milk. <laughs> we, we're at the bottom of the list. And they're in like a, a room that's just pure concrete. So if you can imagine his strat and 500 symbols in a small concrete room, it's really pleasant in there. It's so <laughs> This is a, a phone record. I think it's recorded on a phone, I think, this demo. So many symbols. So many symbols. It's just all symbols. <laughs> it's a bit raga right here, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> Never noticed that. <laughs> A lot of the structure is there, isn't it, in terms yeah. of how you're thinking about the song and what it's going to how it's going to sound yeah i think obviously this is our second record working with rich and and obviously our understanding was a lot tighter and we were kind of on the same page really fast there's some songs just feel right and other songs you cannot shake the tree enough this song had its kind of place and i guess the biggest questions were in the bridge section of this song john where we had i think we did two or three different versions of the bridge and and it was rich's yeah. suggestion to just whip it away like put like a rug pull and it took me like a, a week or so to get used to that and now i can't imagine the song being any other way but but this is a kind of wheelhouse song for us this is probably the most kind of three-piece rock band song on the record perhaps as well as end of so, yeah. so this is where we are most comfortable whereas some of the other songs it's all about it's you know adventuring and experimenting and which is why again it's so much fun to spend time in the studio with rich yeah, man, just keep it coming, Simon. <laughs> I love you, Rich. You know I love you. I miss you. <laughs> but hearing that demo there, I mean, you, that is the band in this space on this farm playing the song that you've already worked on and got to a really uh, good shape. Have you been to this place that they record in or have you just seen pictures of it, Rich? No, I, I went there on the previous album, um, I think for a week or so. Yeah, it's not super, I mean, it's somewhat productive for me to be there, but not massively so, because it's kind of hard to hear what is happening, and <laughs> it's well, a good... I think it's important, to, the, the way you work as well, because we, in that zone, we are very much like a live band in that zone, and the nuance isn't perhaps as explicit or apparent. The first time we were at the practice room with Rich on the last record, you know, we tried a little bit of kind of pre-production and like putting some of the drum. I think you put the kick drum through a distortion pedal, which is classic, <laughs> you know, and, and we kind of very quickly realized that that wasn't the setup to explore these songs. So specifically on Ellipsis, we kept a lot of questions open on Ellipsis 
and figured out probably more than half the album in the studio. Whereas this one was probably a little bit more 75% kind of keeping that essence of us in a room. And then the other 25% was like, what the hell are we doing here? You know? Um, I mean, he did send demos and we went back and forth and we did a bit of pre-production in London on a few songs. And then um, when they came out to the studio in LA, we spent some time before properly recording, going through each song, figuring out some structure ideas and, some songs were just trying to figure out what the aesthetic was going to be. This one, even you can tell from the demo, the aesthetic was already there. A great deal of the song was already in place. So it uh, it just felt great from the beginning. Yeah. So once you've heard that, and obviously, you know, you've already said that you heard some things in it that you were excited about and intrigued and interested to work out how best to record them. And you wanted it to be as light on its feet as possible and yet still be a Biffy Clyro rock song. So... What was the next step? What did you have to do? Well, as I said, they came to LA where the studio is and we spent a bit of time going through a group of songs and doing sort of advanced demos in a room together, mic'd up the drums, went through parts. And then we went to uh, United in Hollywood and recorded, I think, pretty much just drums. We did some bass as well there. Uh, A little bit of guitar, though. I don't think we ended up keeping anything. It was mostly just focusing on drums because we had the parts pretty much together at that point. And uh, that was the, the next stage. I think I have a, a rough mix from right after that period, if you want to hear it here. Yeah. Because what we'd say as well is when, when Rich brings in the more kind of process sound of the beats or things, and, and it really does change the flavor of that song. And I think we'll probably hear some of Rich's kind of loops and things that actually they're quite subtle in the song. But if the song doesn't have those loops, it kind of loses that, like the forward motion comes from almost those mini loops that aren't so in your face, but it really just gives it this propulsion. And and it's incredible how much when you actually do record it in the studio, how much those little details make a massive difference because you can think you have all everything you need, but then when you're going in and, and looking at the subtleties of it, it's a different beast, you know? Yeah. I would also say that one of the things that we kept cracking away at on this song is the verses really pull back a lot. Even in that demo the verses really pull back and kind of get sort of really laid back. This version I'm about to play, I think, still has the same thing. The backing vocals sound kind of quiet when they come in and kind of soft. And as we kept working on the song, uh, that was one thing that, like, first the backing vocals got more processed. We started vocoding them in the verse. And then you started singing it harder and harder until eventually what we ended up with is you singing pretty hard on those backing vocals. And that gave the verse the energy that we were kind of missing a little bit. Yeah, because it really, I was singing it, trying to sing it like very sweetly, the Southless. And we sat on that for a couple of weeks and you kept saying, I think you can hit that vocal again. It needs something else. And and I ended up trying to sing it like, oh, like almost, (laughs) you know, trying to kind of imagine I was an opera singer. And sometimes in those moments, you do need to just take yourself out of that bubble. But we're hearing this version anyway, I'm sure we're... So yeah, this is just after we recorded Basics on it. And I think it's still pretty soft. Soft. (laughs) (laughs) But it still feels heavy here. It doesn't feel light on its feet yet. You know? You you can tell there's like three or four guitars doing that, though. It's like three playing that one riff. It's not straight down the middle. No, 
not bad for a demo, man. Oh, this is after we did drums at United. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, so at that point, I was still in this kind of like almost folk type harmony when we were working. And then as it was more, it, it had to be more Freddie Mercury, John. It had to be just more <laughs> full of itself in the best possible way. definitely slower here at this point too it is it, it's definitely slower oh that's before we cut the pre-chorus in half yeah again it's that way when you've worked on a song for a little while you suddenly realize not everything needs to happen twice not everything's essential and you have to be quite extreme sometimes and just edit it if it doesn't make you feel get it fucking gone yeah For the guitar nerds out there, this is probably the Fender Deluxe on this song at this point. Yes, I think it is. It's like some late 50s deluxes. Let's skip ahead to see if we can find the bridge. I have no idea what's going on in the bridge. Wow. Yeah, so as you can hear, it was when we first went in, it was like we're propelling ourselves through that bridge. And actually, as Rich rightly pointed out, it kind of has zero impact. And then it just does that and doesn't go anywhere. And actually, it needed that valley of that middle section. And actually, I wouldn't have written the vocal if we hadn't changed that bridge section to be something a bit more downbeat then I would never have found the melody for that middle section. So again, it's sometimes you don't know what the song needs until you twist it, and then it kind of opens up the possibilities. And and listening back to that now, I'm so pleased that we made it into something completely different because that just feels a little bit predictable for me that that just kind of goes straight Right. I mean, it's a good bridge, but you can't kick in after that, which was the issue. If I, you know, one Yeah, exactly. If something's loud all the time, the dynamic of being loud doesn't fucking matter anymore. You know, it's yeah. like, cause it's just the same thing, you know, and we've learned a lot of that from Rich over the years about just manipulating things to just make sure that those moments where it needs to be powerful, it is. And sometimes that means subtracting something from another section. Yeah. So at that stage, that recording is still a kind of demo, is it? I mean, that's, we still didn't think so at the, the time, song. but it turned out right. that it was. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, did you have to redo everything on that? having restructured it and rearranged it? Yeah, as we um, kept chipping away at it and feeling that it wasn't... I mean, I love the song, and it just felt like there was something not being served about it yet. There was that light on its feet thing that we were missing still. So we did end up speeding it up. Uh, there's another demo I've got from September of uh, 2019, a rough mix, rather, where it's a lot further along. Mm. And this has the intro, the structure's there. I think the tempo might be there. One of the... Interesting things that happened is that a couple months after this, we went to Abbey Road to record strings on uh, on a few songs, and we stayed for a few days to finish recording space. And the drums, I mean, Abbey Road, it really is the greatest studio in the world. It just, it's shocking. And it's not just because of the history that, you know, sends shivers up your back. It's the competence of the place. It's the quality of the sound, the quality of the people, the vibe, everything. And so when we set the drums up, of course it was the best drum sound. Um, and, <laughs> and because I'm totally fucking insane, I'm like, 
if we have the best drum sound and we all know how the songs go now, why don't we just play down a couple songs? And so, you did. Uh, and we did. And sometimes people can put up with my shenanigans and sometimes they don't, but Simon uh, puts up with it. So the next version I'm going to play you is much further along, but it's before we put the final drums on because the final drums didn't go on until that Abbey Road session. Right. Even that raid sounds different. Yeah. I can tell it's a different raid symbol. But the side stick is programmed. Is it? Is that, is that programmed? Side stick? Yeah. See, the guitars still weren't right yet. It's, you were right all along, man. <laughs> still weren't right. Still weren't right. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's cool. Oh, there's harmonics there. I think we kept them in a little. We, we sampled in... them, and then we played them on keyboards, didn't we? Yeah, that's right. But yeah, you can hear John. It's experience that allows yourself to be kind of strong enough to say it's not quite right yet. You know, yeah. if we had to do a record in a month, then sometimes you just have to go, well, that's it. That's what it is. But to be able to keep coming back and revisiting and as Rich says, to hear those drums, once Ben started playing a bit of drums in Abbey Road, it was a case of, I'm afraid you're going to have a very busy night tonight, Ben, you know? Because <laughs> you, you play better as well, though. When something makes you feel like that, you play better, and it's the same with the guitar. You can tell I'm a bit unsure in my playing, even in that version of the song, and then once we get that tone absolutely tuned in, suddenly it couldn't be any other way, you know? And it's only experience that allows you to kind of have that patience, I guess. Wow, the backing vocal stack is so soft. I know. Thank goodness we made it extreme because those moments of personality and the character, if you don't let them dominate, and I've done this in previous records where like my favorite overdub or something is so buried in the mix and it ends up not being as important as it should be. And in this song, those stacked harmonies, until we got them loud and proud, the song wasn't quite clicking, and I'm really glad we went as ostentatious as we did. Well, we're going to have to hear those in due course. I mean, so this is a, what would you call that, Mark Two or Mark Three of the song so far that we've just heard? Yeah, that's probably Mark Three, I think. What I would say, when I was looking through some mixes earlier, I think we got, in some songs, we got up to about mix 18, not all of them. Yeah. But again, it's like, if you just mute one thing from that mix, you can suddenly take the song somewhere entirely different. And when I'm making the music, my patience maybe isn't as long as it should be. But once we've got stuff down and once you can kind of hear what's lacking or, or you, you know, suddenly at that moment, it kind of makes sense to revisit. I don't think you've got your, the beats or the, the loops or anything going in the pre-chorus there. No, there's not much. And also James Russian did some stuff on the final version, which wasn't on that song yet. He's a good friend of ours and just a brilliant, sick programmer. Oh, he's, a, he's such a talent. And actually, the, he worked in a couple of songs in the record, James Russian. And he's just a kind of noise manipulator, a bit of a producer, I guess. But he just he's really left field. And he, he did a couple of kind of just distorted type screams into his laptop and things. And we were just able to manipulate them. And it just... 
builds this tension. And again, it's not things that you hear on first listen or fifth listen. These, you know, this record especially is layered. So if you listen to this a hundred times, you're still going to be hearing things that you haven't heard before. And and James's stuff was like the very last ingredient we put on this, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is also, so after we, we threw a bunch of different guitar sounds at it, as Simon mentioned, and in the end, what we ended up using is a, uh, was simply as a 1969 100-watt Marshall into a 1969 cabinet with your Strat, I think, just going straight into it. I don't even know if we had any pedals or anything. I don't think we um, had a pedal. I think you drove it hard. Yeah, with like 157 on it. Like, it was the most basic of setups. This is a man that spent his entire life in plugging in as many amps as I can get my hands <laughs> on. Like, there can never be too many overdubs. It blew my mind that you could get such a tone and such a sound, which we'll hear it or maybe in the, I'm not sure if it's the final version we'll listen to next, but it's made me change my view of how to play guitar and how to record guitars. And that's after making however many records. So it's also, it's a great feeling to feel that you're still learning at this stage of being in a band. And I think any creative person who thinks there's nothing to learn is just hitting a dead end. But it's nice when you're surprised, you're like, fuck, I can't believe one guitar can sound more powerful than 10. And it's taken me this long to kind of realize that. Yeah. I mean, I think in the final version, we have the two Marshall guitars, and we also have some of Giovanni's amps as well in there. Oh, uh, yeah, the Black Bolts. The Black Bolts are underneath that. Um, so it's kind of a mix of them. But the one mic thing is something I just figured out a few years ago, which seems like something everyone probably does at some point and they throw it away. But when you're using multiple mics, I've done every setup you can imagine. And um, multiple mics and multiple amps, you have you lose a little bit of phase tightness. It's always an issue with the phase. So there's all kinds of techniques you can use when you're setting up the mics to try to get the phase as tight as possible. But it's never as tight as just one mic. It can't be. And when the, the sound just came fully formed out of that amp to what we needed, you know? Um, Are you able to illustrate what you had and then what you got once you realized, I know, one single microphone, well, one amp? I'm not sure. I mean, uh, other than hearing that demo, and then I've got a couple stems here, but they, they sound kind of strange taken out of context. This is the <laughs> guitar stem here. And again, John, the one thing I've learned from working with Rich as well is that sometimes, especially in heavy rock bands, you sometimes try and make your guitar fill so much of the frequency and so much of the mix. And actually, you've got to have the faith that the bass and the drums are filling that bottom end. So quite often, when you hear like you know that guitar like soloed, it perhaps sounds a bit thinner than you'd imagine and maybe less distorted than you'd imagine. But when it layers on top, it just gives a different impression. And you know, like because I, I use like still use like metal zone pedals live, and I think I tried to get a metal zone in this. We did. We tried it on every song, the metal zone. And it just sounds like a bee stuck in a speaker, you know. <laughs> so that guitar stem that you just played us, which was that? That was from mix seven, but the final mix of the song was 10. Um, I think that may have been, because we, we honed in a little, John, as well. Like, we got the sound much closer. And then I think my playing, I just, because I'd played it so often, we took a wee break for a few days and I think we maybe come back and played it that final time. So that's probably as close to the final guitar, but maybe just the actual playing was probably tightened up a little. Yeah, right. So we've got a few other elements here. I grabbed this. Here's the clean guitar in the, in the intro.
love that they beat too. And is that Ben playing that drum or is that a loop you've created? That's all FL Studio. Me right. goofing off in FL. So he played on top of this. Yeah. And then obviously when it kicks in, all the FL programming just stops. I mean, you can hear Simon singing. He's really going for it up there. <laughs> I don't think I've got that in me anymore, man. <laughs> in this six months at home, I don't have that note. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. It's there. It's the subtle layers, John. That's what, you know, like this could exist almost as a song and like this, you know, with that mm. kind of beat. Not anymore, obviously, but once you start working a song, there are so many avenues you could take it down. And some songs are tell you where they need to go, which makes it easier. Other songs, it's like you feel like until you've got your last mix that you've still got like five different ways you could take it. This one, not so much, but even you can hear the layers of loops and vocals and and how it all builds up. And it's so subtle because you do, you've got a three-piece rock band playing on top of that, but the foundations are shifting the whole time. And I think, again, that's what makes it so satisfying to listen to, I guess, I hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the vocals that we just heard, so um, at what point did you redo those vocals to get them the way you wanted them? Because you were saying that they were too soft. Well, to be honest, like most singers are chicken shit and we want to do our vocals last thing. And Rich is always saying, now let's try and get a vocal down so that it doesn't build up into this insurmountable hurdle that you can't ever get over. So the good thing was I did the layers of the vocals. Initially, it was partly to see if the concept, you know, proof of concept, and it started to work. And then it was just we were sitting with it, and it was probably one of my last vocals maybe I did was stacking that up. What do you think, Rich? I, I think it was in early October, because even Phil Christie at Warner said he had a bug in him about those vocals too, which I thought was pretty helpful. He kept saying that he thought that you needed to sing it harder. So he was actually a helpful extra pair of ears right there for us. Yeah, because when you're living in a song as well, like sometimes you don't quite see, and that extra pair of ears can really just help kind of open your eyes a little. So yeah, one of the last things, and again, it's, it's that moment of pure personality. A song can feel great and do tick all the boxes, but... You can't always explain why it doesn't just make you go, yes, you know, and it's those little moments that just when I was doing that vocal, John, it was like almost trying to make Rich laugh to a certain extent, make Ben and James laugh. And quite often, see if you have a giggle in the studio, it quite often means you're doing something right. You know, we don't spend a lot of time laughing and it doesn't mean you don't take what you're doing seriously, but music, there should be moments, especially in rock music that make you go, that's ridiculous, you know, in the best possible way. And so getting those vocals down, on top of all the music and the loops, I think that really made it easier for me to know what the vocal needed. Because before that, you can hear those different versions. It's maybe the guitars are a bit more fuzzy and, and it's maybe not quite as kind of on the nose. So by the time that mix coming up to like whatever mix that was, like ninth mix or whatever, suddenly it's like, all right, my vocals need to sit here to stand up and dominate the music because now the music's dominating so it's just getting that kind of seesaw balance right yeah but but even in rock music you know the vocals are the most important thing the joke is always no one goes away singing the hi-hat you know and and, <laughs> and it's true it's true i know the vocal doesn't come in at the very top of the song but the first impression of a song is normally like what do the vocals make you feel like and then it kind of dissipates down you know so yeah. 
So yeah, we cracked that one at the 11th hour, I'll say, to make it sound more dramatic. <laughs> it was 11pm on the 29th of December at a flight on the 30th. You know. um, are we able to hear the development of the vocal then in that way? I don't I don't have the full session open up. I just have some stems that have grabbed yeah. out here. So uh, I'm not sure that I would be uh, at liberty to be playing acapella lead vocals. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone needs to be hearing that, John. But, but again, again, when we were doing it, there's probably like 32 vocal tracks in that section. You know, it's like two low octaves, two high octaves, doing a full voice. It's. I remember watching like a, a fucking Death Leopard dramatization of the making of Adrenaline. And they have this moment where like the pretend Mutt Lang is standing behind Joe Elliott as he's doing his vocal. And he's just going, one higher, Joe. You can go one higher. And then he just keeps going. It's like, you know, so that's what I was imagining when I was singing. It was like this actor over my shoulder, a rich over my shoulder, just going, one higher, son. Just higher. <laughs> you did reach up there in the end. I mean, that's, you definitely went further than we thought you were. Because I think initially you were singing that high note as a falsetto. Yeah, like, Southless. But yeah. Southless. That kind of vibe. Yeah, and all the early versions, those are all falsettos. And then in the end, uh, you pulled it out. One of the issues with this song, with a lot of the songs, but with this song, uh, a notable issue is that Simon tunes to drop C and getting a a non-modified Stratocaster to stay in tune in drop C is like a fucking nightmare. Um, And his songs are quite complicated. So like if something is slightly out, it's really notable. And uh, we ended up having to bring in a ringer because it was beyond our capabilities at a certain point to deal with that. Because initially we were thinking, you know, we kind of thought we would just be able to do it to get keep guitars ticking over ourselves in the Strat, just tuning the Strat down. It just wants to fold in on itself. And we had a wonderful tech called Steve who just, he talking about it as if it was biology, wasn't it? He was like, a, he was talking about it like the, you know, almost like the veins and the arteries of the guitar and why this is affected up here by this down here. And we were just sitting going, amazing, just give me that fucking guitar, man. It sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> but it was fascinating because after Steve went through the guitars and uh, we looked at some of these songs again, it was almost like we had a whole new setup, like a whole new amp, a whole new microphone chain. And it was just that they were perfectly in tune down in that region. It was um, hard to believe, wasn't it? Like, yeah, it, I was very shocked. It went from like what we didn't realize was the guitar was operating basically 80%. Steve came in, set it all up for the drop C, which is, as we've said for Strat's silly. And it just immediately was just performing. It was hard to believe. Rich and me had a bit of a laugh about it because we were like, thank fuck we called someone. You know, like, <laughs> like, the album could have, would have been you know, equally as good, but because you wouldn't have known what was missing. But my God, what a difference that made. And we couldn't have done that one amp, one microphone thing without Steve's expertise and just getting the guitar to just sing like a baby. Wow. I mean, that seems such a crucial but subtle thing that the two of you couldn't get a grip on it, that you know somebody had to come in who was really brilliant at, at tuning and make sure that he could do it every time. Um, I was going to say, if you listen to this rough mix back in May, this would have been before... It kind of sounds in tune, but it's still kind of sludgy and warbly, you know? It's a wee bit wavy, isn't it? It's a little bit local, as we see. And then this this is the final version of the song here. I swear we tuned it up higher. That sounds a half step higher to me. It does, but 
It can be, because I, I couldn't sing, I, I don't think I could sing it, or the guitar wouldn't have went down to B. Perfectly in tune, John. That doesn't happen by accident. <laughs> <laughs> Is that going to prove a bit of a challenge to maintain that now if you try and perform this live? Yes, it can be tough actually. There's once you've spent worked in a record and you play it on stage, the first month I'm just sitting going, This is horrifically out of tune. That's all I think for the first month of tour. But you know, it becomes a different version. You start to accept that it is just a different thing. You know, the live thing's about more, it was about just so much yeah. more than the sonics of it. I poke in my eyes just to prove they're no longer. Those backing vocals have really taken its change at this point. <laughs> Radically different. Yeah, they're a lot different. It just came at that strut that I think the demo versions of the song didn't have that kind of cock of the walk. And now it's like, this is full of confidence, this. I just have to play this part again. You can hear James actually screaming over the end of that section. If you listen, that if you hear something that sounds like a scream, that's James screaming. Well, of course you couldn't stay. Ben plays some badass drums in this as well. It's quite an unusual rhythm and the way he hits the cymbals, it's quite unusual and, and it kind of makes you feel a bit awkward, but Ben's managed to make it feel so smooth and powerful. It's There's nothing above us, below us, or say again the vocal effect rich you know rich normally has my vocals quite dry i guess at certain points on this song just that little touch of distortion and that lead vocal again it just tipped it over the edge this song you know it sounded a bit too honest and a bit too sincere with the clean vocal over it in which you couldn't breathe but of course you couldn't say The swing is better at this point, too. That's something I spent a lot of time concerned about, the swing of a track. But you can feel this. It has a nice double-time, half-time thing cooking in the chorus. That's so worth talking about because, again, my instinct, John, is always to like, play the song kind of fast, as fast as we can kind of do it. Oh, here's this middle section. I love it. It's so creepy. I love it. And sadly, the lyrics are still appropriate. <laughs> we know what we're worth. Remove the shroud, motherfuckers. Can you feel it? Um, the tempo of a song, John, is so important. And Rich really goes to town in tempo. I mean, he'll go to half a BPM up. He'll be like, 136 isn't working. Let's try 136.5 beats per minute. <laughs> And again, for years I thought that was all just chat. You know, I didn't think that those things were as important as I'd been told. This song has that one BPM window of being light on its feet and being swinging rather than just like heavy and moshy. So again, like Rich really spends time in that. In fact, during Ellipsis, we started a Twitter account called Tempo Junkie. It was just a Twitter account discussing tempos. 
It was just all bullshit. I think it's still there. It's still there. We were like, my way by Frank Snatch is good, but 2 BPM faster? Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) So that is the finished version of North of No South by Biffy Claro. And we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back in just a moment with Instant History. You may have heard us talk about Tape It before, and if you haven't, then let me fill you in, as they are the sponsor of today's episode with a fantastic offer for you. Tape It is an iPhone recording app made by musicians for musicians. Many of our guests on Tape Notes, music industry friends and listeners rely on voice notes to record their early ideas. People like the Lumineers, Ezra Collective and Fred again have all shared recordings with us made on voice notes. But what you wouldn't have heard are the long pauses where they're searching for those recordings. We wouldn't want to put you through that. As you can understand, organising and finding the right notes, let alone a specific part, can be a nightmare. Tape It solves all of that voice memo chaos with intuitive labelling features, including automatic instrument detection, markers and collaborative mixtapes, meaning you can share band practices, organise set lists and brainstorm ideas with co-writers and band members. Plus, you can record straight from your lock screen and attach text and photo notes to each recording. One of our favourite features within Tape It Pro is that you can record in stereo using two microphones along with gentler dynamic compression to give a much more natural sound than any of the usual apps. It's a huge upgrade to the microphone and all-round audio quality. It really helps support the podcast whenever you engage with our sponsors. So if Tape It sounds like an app you'd use, then do us a favour. Pause the episode, head to the link in a recent episode show notes, or visit tape.it forward slash tape notes and give Tape It a go. That's tape.it forward slash tape notes. You can download for free or use the promo code tape notes for 50% off Tape It Pro. Thank you. And now on with the show. Did you do it? Honestly, Tape It is fantastic. All of the Tape Notes team members are complete converts. And excitingly, some of our guests have started to use it as well. So I really would recommend checking it out. So the next song we're going to look at is Instant History from A Celebration of Endings. Um, Now, this is quite a contrast to North of No South. Simon, when we talked before for Radio X about this, you know, I mentioned that it has a drop. You know, it's like a whole different territory for the band. But I understand that you actually wrote with other people for this song. You took a different approach from the off. Yeah, I think because I've written so many songs for Biffy, I really I like to not feel like I'm sitting down writing a Biffy song, you know, because at this stage you can just think, OK, well, this will fit. So I kind of go away and work on other projects. And if any of the songs really kind of speak to me or speak to the boys, then I'm willing to bring them into the free. You know, the main thing is that Ben and James are happy about that. So instant history and space in this record I wrote with other people. There's something really special about those two songs. And I think even when Rich heard instant history the first time, and it was just a keyboard sketching initially, just like the same keyboard notes going round and I think at the verse, maybe not the final lyrics, but we knew where the chorus was going and what the melody was doing. Now, from writing from that perspective and not doing it as a band, they're the kind of songs that I'm never quite sure how where to take them. You know, when we play these kind of songs in the practice room, they become one thing, and that's perhaps not my intention for that song. So this was a song that we've kept very unsure of itself until we got in with Rich. Do you have the that original demo? Because I couldn't find it. And that I, I went be- for it earlier. I don't have it because, again, my default with demos, I delete demos as soon as... 
I've done another version of the song because I just have this fear. I just don't like sitting in anything or accidentally hearing a demo of a song when I've finished it just because I don't want to get a fright. I don't want to either hear it incomplete or worst case scenario, you hear a demo and think that's better than the final version. <laughs> right. so, so, so I don't actually keep demos, so I don't have that, but it was very, very skeletal. Now, what took this song where it needed to be was the drum rhythm and the verse. I couldn't get beyond just the melody and the chords of this one, John. And in a way, that's what made it end up becoming something completely different for us as a band, you know, and letting it be just more of a produced song. Yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad I felt quite liberated for that because, again, when it's a song and you, you build up entirely yourself in the room, it's kind of there's only one or two ways it can work. In a song like this, I love the, the endless possibilities of just here's the chords, here's the melody. But yeah, it was terrifying recording Instant History because I didn't know what it was going to sound like, you know, until we started building it up. I think I found the demo. I think I found it. Oh, yeah. Wow. Amazing. One of the tricky things about it is that when you hear the demo, it is just basically a keyboard and Simon's vocal. And so it doesn't easily lend itself to what you might think a Biffy song could be. And it was one of the last songs we worked on because we tinkered with it a few times during the session and I just couldn't get a grip on where it was headed. Um, but the record company was quite keen on it <laughs> to be blunt. <laughs> it was part of it. <laughs> I think our, our instinct was always to fuck up. Like whenever I hear something that's too poppy, I always want to just fuck it up and dirty it up. And actually this song, every time we would kind of mess it up and make it busy, it kind of lost that little bit of magic. Yeah. What I thought was interesting about the process is that the, as I'm just about to play the first writing demo, which I think this is what this is, is, um, as I said, it's basically a keyboard. And so when we went to attack it, you're sitting there and there's that time period when you're in the studio with an artist and you don't really know what's about to happen. You know, something has to happen. And you know there's enough talent in the room to make something extraordinary happen, but you don't know when it's going to happen. And you're just kind of sitting there sometimes, you know? And you're like listening to stuff and you're hanging out. And uh, there's almost always some moment like this on a project. And it can be terrifying. But if everyone in the room has trust, which is critically important when making an album, then you don't sweat it. You know it's going to happen. And so with this song, we're like, all right, we need to get this song right. Let's hunker down on it and get it right. And we were just kind of sitting there. And I'll play the demo first here. My love will never slip away Cause my God Stay. This is just made up lyrics on the spot. This is finding this song, you know. Yeah. But the melodies, chord chains are all there, obviously. Even the tempo is pretty good. Not let it slip away. I got a fever in my home. I gotta take it all up. I got the feeling you will go. Can you feel it? This is the sound that we made. This is the sound that we made. Yeah, you can hear how small the song was, John, and how many options you have when it's just so skeletal. Yeah, yeah, it's very open, isn't it? So you wrote this with 
Steve Mack, is that right? Yes, I did, yeah. Yeah. Pop extraordinaire. Yeah, so, I mean, Steve has an incredible history and pedigree of working with all sorts of different massive pop hits. And was it just Steve or was somebody else involved in this as well? This one, actually, one of his buddies was in that day. I'd, I'd been in London for a little while and Steve has mm-hmm. let me use his studio. And, you know, his mates are in and out. So, yeah, we just wrote about three songs in a day. And this was the one that took only about 20 minutes. Sometimes a melody just comes and you're like, well, that was easy. And I kind of <laughs> forgot about this song, and as I say, until the boys heard it. And I was like, shit, okay, right, you like this, you know? But it's, it took me a while as well to relinquish that kind of ego as well to share music, you know, which is why I can't do it in my Biffy headspace, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting hearing this now because it seems obvious what it's going to be. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't matter at all. Um, when you hear our version, though, you'll always be sure. But it, was, it wasn't that obvious as to how to attack it from a band perspective. So we had this, and then we knew we had to make a version that we were excited about. Um, yeah. So we're sitting in the, in the studio, and we just needed a jumping off point, and we set up Ben's drums, and um, I just had an idea of what he should play and just... I mean, I don't want to take credit for the part, but I told him what to play. You did. I, um, I came back in from getting a green juice and I came running through and I was like, what is happening in here? Because immediately, like, you just managed to take this. This song was just simmering and the rhythm was the toughest thing to find. And I remember coming in and hearing Ben play it through the wall. And I, had, I remember interrupting as you were recording, going, whatever you're doing right now, this is fucking perfect. And it was, it took that leap of faith because again, it's an unnatural thing for Ben to play. And I think Rich is going, just do something a bit more kind of Motown or something or something. I stood in the room with him and just shouted at him while he was while we were getting the part together. So this is... Wow, did we do that? Yeah. <laughs> I love that scene. Dear God, adjust my dreams for me. A little bit faster as well. Yeah. Is instant history. It's weird because this song in our, in my kind of experience, so this feels like a, a, a song with way less dynamic than we normally play with, and I think that's right. what makes it tough to find out what the drums and everything should do because we're used to having those moments of attack and moments of pulling things away. Yeah. Oh, nice. a much more kind of fucked up kind of Motown vibe this and this yeah very much so you gotta hear my Dire Straits guitar solo after the second (laughs) chorus as well it's fucking amazing it's hot a magic in this version but we knew the song felt almost bigger than this you know the song felt like it, it didn't have that moment of the vista the full landscape being opened out which is why we ended up tweaking the chorus and changing the chorus because the verse is that tension and then there's that release it's all about that moment of just going oh we've reached our destination 
Whereas this one kind of doesn't really reach its destination, maybe. It doesn't go halftime in the chorus, which is the big change. Yeah, yeah. that's the... It keeps it on a groove, doesn't it? In a great way, you know, and yeah. the bass sounds fantastic. But it's a different thing to what you end up with. And yeah. again, just slightly less, um, like, risk, slightly less brave, I think, for our band. You know, it felt that this song was an opportunity to kind of really go left field for us. Whereas this felt that we kept bringing it back into, like, three-piece rock. And we like, let's let it gallop, you know. Here comes your Dire Straits solo. Oh, I love this solo. Can we do this in the live version because I can't resist it? <laughs> I even played it with fingers, John. I even played it with fingers. <laughs> I love that sound of the melody in the chorus. Again, you you put something through a fucking wobble monitor, or wobble meter, or something. Oh yeah, well, I threw everything at that thing. I probably put a hundred different, tried a hundred different keyboard sounds for that. Yeah, and I think they're all in that one track. Like there was one point <laughs> where we had too much stuff. We had like you know forty things doing that melody, and then we just had to tear <laughs> them all away. Yes, that's quite a different version. Yeah. It is, and it has its own charm. And it's interesting, you know, I'm able to watch the two of you and, and see your reactions to it. I mean, you clearly really enjoy that version <laughs> a lot because there's a lot to enjoy. But it's interesting at the same time, there's this nagging thing going on in your minds thinking, no, it's not quite where we want it to go. It's not quite the th- way it should be. Yes. By that stage of a record as well, when you maybe have like, you know, eight songs that are like 95% complete, it's a lot easier to see where the last few songs should sit. You know, at the start of a record, the options are limitless and that's a nice position to be in. But also if it's a song like this, it can be really intimidating. And I think afterwards, you know, like we'd cracked North, we'd cracked The Champ, we'd cracked Weird Leisure and probably even Cop Syrup by that point. And we just, we were feeling confident and brave. And it was like, you know what, we can afford to have something that is actually, for want of a better word, a bit more, I was about to say dumb, but you know, in a good way, you know, that way, like, you know that, but you know that, what I mean, like some, I love prog music and I love weird math rock and stuff. After I listen to 20 minutes of that, I want to hear something else. And that's what our band does. I want our record to feel like, oh, I haven't felt this yet in this album. You know, it's taking me somewhere different. And that's why this song felt like this can just be almost the opposite of like, of cop syrup. It can be just something that's pure space. And, and, and as I say, lacks that dynamic, but, um, when I hear this song now, I can't imagine it being any other way. And when I heard that demo earlier, I, w- I was really taken back because we did love that version initially. We were like, <laughs> oh, fuck, this is cool. You know, and now it's like, it's just more of a quirky version to me now. I think I still, you know, I, I love the version we have that ended up in the record. It's just got a real confidence rather than cockiness to it. Yeah. Quite a few elements from that version are in the final version, like the verse drum beat, but, but it's obviously a lot more concise and the halftime drop and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. I think you literally just, re- I think we just removed things in the mix pretty much, Rich, to a certain point. 
because mm-hmm. all the melody things were there. I think we just took bits away. The main keyboard was kept from that demo. The drums were kept from that. I think the bass part was kept, but we maybe flew it from the verse or like the chorus bass line was actually the one that ended up being the pre-chorus and little mm-hmm. things like that. I think Steve added some halftime drums in the chorus. Or did Ben not play those drums? I'm, I think he did do it, but I think that that was something that he yeah, worked Steve, on with Steve. Yeah, Steve was like, let's just pull the rug. Yeah, yeah. Drummers don't like being told what to drum. <laughs> Which Steve is this? Yeah, that's Steve, Steve Mack. Steve did some complimentary production. When we were coming to the end of the record and we knew what we kind of wanted the song to be, it was like, right, let's do it. So I went in to see Steve when I came back home as well and we just kind of finished it. And then I was back out to see Rich in November when we mixed the album, I think it was. Yeah, and then we finished the, we did some more work on the song at that point. Yeah, exactly. I re-sang parts of that. I re-sang a couple of things, actually. I just was feeling looser. Because, again, once the album's so close, you suddenly your pressure isn't on your voice. You know, I was there mm-hmm. just to watch Rick's, Rich mixing the record. <laughs> so every time I heard something, that I was like, no, I can do that better now. And it just felt liberated at that point because I was so sure that each song was living where it needed to live, you know. So when did the halftime decision uh, come in then? Probably quite quite late. Yeah. Are we able to illustrate that, how you kind of got that? It's uh, These sessions are extremely large, so to open up the raw Pro Tools session is uh, quite an achievement. Yeah, we'll continue this podcast next week. <laughs> <laughs> but what we could do is kind of talk our way through the final version then. And so... Yes, know, good idea. Yeah. Again, this this tone um, in Steve's studio, he's got this wonderful bank of like, keyboards that he just has set up. And this tone that he had in the keyboard was just, we couldn't replicate it. We tried it a few different times, didn't we? I think for, it was for the hook that he, it was a, like a Prophet 6, I think he is. But this intro is, we did this in, in LA. And drums so good. Take all the bottom end out of the drums as well, just so it's That's sitting right. up here. Hell hath no fury like a human born. It's only real to can't replace it. And that bass line, that kit was kept from the Motown version of the song. Yeah. Why do I fear it? And here we go. This is the sound that we make. There's a, one of my favorite guitar pedals, it's the Sun drone pedal that right. in this chorus. <laughs> Forgot it just felt so incongruous to have like the most pop chorus we ever had with a drone metal distortion pedal. <laughs> <underneath it. laughs> that is the most doom pedal of all time. My favorite pedal of all time. <laughs> Some of these songs I struggle with the really high notes I always have and Ben's got such a beautiful tone. Ben and James both sing that chorus and without their delivery in that chorus it just wouldn't have that payoff either because I was kind of singing it from Seto and it's like, oh, it's lacking, it's lacking. To any time Guitar here is real. <laughs> we tried to kind of keep this away from any familiar tropes that we would do in other songs because it was so kind of different and the way we built it up was different to the others it was really important to kind of make sure that we didn't take it down an obvious path you know yeah this is the sound that we make. Can you hear it? the tough thing about playing this live 
for the first time, which we did a little while ago, it feels so much slower to play. Really? Because you've got that bit, and then this point it's like... There's <laughs> just so much space, and it's so weird for us. It's like, I remember the first time we played a song called Biblical live, and I remember thinking, this doesn't feel right. And then you play it for a few months, and it feels natural as you like. But this song was just like, there's no movement. Like, we only stop in the chorus songs, like, rather than kind of get busier and then things getting. It's interesting to hear that just because you have so many changes, so many tempo changes in Biffy songs so often, you know, that this one proves to be a challenge for you, that it's just out of your comfort zone, out of the norm that you are associated with. It's the only reason because we can turn in a sixpence normally. And it's almost like whenever I'm singing it, I can kind of feel the section coming up. And I'm like, right, just remember, breathe in, breathe out. You know, like, don't gallop through this section, you know. Yeah. But I tell you what, that song, I'm really looking forward to playing that live. There's some songs that, you know, we're looking forward to sharing on stage. That's just one of those, you know, that you know when we start playing it, there's just going to be like a, a real get-together, a real communal sing-along. And, and it's going to feel good. And especially because none of us have been making our sounds, any of our fucking normal sounds over this year. And it's just that expression of this is the sound that we make. I can't wait to kind of share that moment. And this song has built in my mind more because we haven't had it out in the road. You know, I know I would have yeah. my favourites on the album so far from what I was enjoying playing live at the moment. I'm still just kind of enjoying the record, which is so weird for me to be able to do that, you know? <laughs> I'm not yeah, sick of just, just sit back at home and just listen think, oh, Put my album on again. It sounds great. <laughs> Put some peanut butter in my chest. <laughs> Netflix on. Crank Biffy. Happy. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting. So that is instant history. We're going to talk about cop syrup, which is completely different again in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break, uh, but we'll be back with more of Biffy, more from Simon, more from Rich on the way. Welcome back to the Viffy Clyro Tape Notes. Rich and Simon are with me. We're going to talk about cop syrup now, but Rich is going to play us a blast of the finished version of the song to get us all in the zone. Wow, wow. The great thing about doing a podcast is that I can say the phrase fuck everybody and not have to worry about it like I do on the radio. <laughs> and, uh, you know, what a way to end the album with that message, <laughs> possibly. It's an important message that everyone needs to get behind. <laughs> <laughs> You 
you know what? It's almost like a purge at the end of this album. You know, it's like just letting yes. it's just letting that out the tension that's built up. You know, personally, just things over the last few years, and like this is my favorite form of expression is that kind of real primal. You know, like just letting it all not almost worrying about how things sound and just being pure emotion. And yeah, I don't get that. I don't get that from you at all. No, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a man with experience saying that. But you know, just this song, it, with lots of work to do in the middle section, building these kind of punk rock sections was a lot of fun. We kind of threw almost everything at it, Rich, didn't we? I mean, it was—it's never going to be too big. Whatever you put on, it won't be too big for the song. The song can handle anything. I hope that doesn't come across like an arsehole, but that's what this felt like. This song felt like there's parts to this song and it can be the biggest song it ever needs to be. It can be the ugliest song it needs to be. And at moments we do all of that. And the important part was it was Rich primarily that discussed getting the string players in to play on the aggressive section of the song. You know, just gave it this thread through the whole record. I'd only kind of thought of the strings in the beautiful kind of pastoral middle section. And actually it was putting those strings into the, the heavier bit that really made it just kind of elevated it for want of a better phrase. Yeah, that's interesting. And to what extent was this all there in the demo version? Because did you do a, a version of this at the farm? Yeah, there's the farm version here. I mean, it's some of it is pretty similar, this song, because it's, I think, to follow up on what Simon was saying, like, it's such an extreme song that when you have a piece that's this extreme, there's no limits. You can do anything. And that feels very liberating. And I, I think you can sort of hear that. Uh, so this is the farm version. Even the drum beat's the same. We do have the groove in that version. We're galloping. I edited those stabs again when we first started doing the demos. Yeah, slightly different vocal melody this time. Is that the metal zone? Yeah, always. Metal, metal zone sounds good. Finally! Finally! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so quite often, John, the, the, my vocal melodies, I'll always kind of let them evolve quite a bit. So this co the chorus in this version is completely different, but I knew it wasn't the final one. You can just tell when some can be better. But the vibe just felt right. Shite melody. Shite. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what we did in the middle section. Yeah, that's just... what I'm wondering. Is it, is it going to change? I think it's the same because we had there were a lot of discussions about chopping it down. And you were obstinate, Simon. You were like, hell no, we're not chopping this ending at all. Yeah, I, I felt like it kind of was what it was, this song. And I, I felt that the middle section, if you shorten the length, the journey isn't the same. It's just... Oh, straight heavy. Weird. Yeah, this must have been... This is April 29th, 2019. Right, just before we come over to you. 
So it doesn't break down at all then? We had a previous version that I'd done that maybe wasn't a demo we said here, and it was, I had me doing the keyboards and things, kind of getting the, the quieter section. But when we recorded that last demo, we wondered about just keeping it up. Right, I remember that. But it then had nowhere to go. You know, it was like, all right, yeah. we'll keep it up so there's no dip. But you can't keep getting higher. You can try, but you're just thinking <laughs> it ain't going to happen. And I think it was Rich's suggestion to break it right down to an acoustic guitar on the middle, which was smaller than I had envisaged it. I mean, this goes on for a long time, yeah, basically yeah. at the same. <laughs> yeah, but it's a good illustration of how the song was to start with. You know, I mean, it, so much of the ingredient is there, you know, and it is kind of in a way the essence of Biffy Clyro, the three of you performing this kind of music together. You know, this takes you back to your roots. It takes you back to your influences and, well, and the kind you, of... If, if you hear it here, technically it's a four piece because it's the three of them plus the cymbals. <laughs> <laughs> I think you can hear me actually singing the string parts there. So, like, you know, we had an outline of what the part was to do, mm. there, but yeah, symbols just fucking killed that there. There you go. Yeah, you can hear the you attempting to sing the string section. It's hard to build it up when it's just the three of us in a room. You know, we've only got six hands. So, you know, sometimes the boys have to have that little leap of faith with the song. You know, I'll be like, honestly, trust me, it'll be this long, but it won't be boring. And I think Rich, you secretly relished the fact that I didn't edit it down. (laughs) I did. I I did push back several times to try to edit the ending, but I'm glad that you never wanted to uh, shorten it. The thing is, is every part feels essential. That's the thing. Maybe when you first listen to it, it can sound like, wow, it's like a four minute kind of, swirling chord pattern but actually every moment's essential in this song and I, and I don't mean to sound like a prick again but it is every moment's considered every moment has purpose and it reaches that peak at the exact right time and that's why that outro where it goes back to the punk rock section why that's so satisfying is because you just switch off your mind it needed to be just long enough that you switched off your mind and forgot that it was music you know you're drawn into it you're kind of almost meditating and then you're ripped back to reality. And if you shorten that edit of that song, it loses all that impact, you know. And because yeah. we had songs like Instant History in the record, it, it, this song gave Instant History permission to be. Instant History gives this song permission to be. And I mm-hmm. think that's always the trade-off in a record is getting that balance of, you know, how do you make the most effective piece of music? Yeah, totally. So what should we hear next in the evolution and development of Cop Syrup? Well, well, we should I'm say gonna... that the strings were an important part. Oh, yeah, part. the strings are critically important. Um, were, were there demo versions of the strings? I mean, did you? No. No, no we didn't no. hear them until we got to Abbey Road and Rob Mathis, who's brilliant, just started conducting them. Wow. So at what point did he make an arrangement then? You know, did you sing him some <laughs> the part? I, I said we had did a version, a demo, which you might have, Rich, I'm not sure, where I played the middle section, just all the keyboards, like the woodwind and things. So there was an outline for what the song needed to do. And there was like two or three melodies that I said to Rob Mathis. I was like, we need to keep these. These are the, the real important parts of this section. 
and the rest can kind of, you know, use your expertise. I don't want to tell Rob Mathis what to do. The guy's a fucking genius. But there are moments in there where it was like, it has to do this. This bit has to follow this melody. And then he was able to bring in all the kind of lower cello parts. So basically that main string section that you hear throughout the whole is like what I'm singing there and what I ended up playing. But I think I put in some harps and some trumpets in my version. And Rob was like, you know what? I think it just needs strings here. You know, yeah. maybe a bit of piano and things. But um, I have a little bit of some strings here. We can hear some of the stuff that Rob did. This is over the intro. And then over the build section. Takes me back to my Philip Glass days a little bit. Yeah, I bet it does. I still can't believe they could play that on strings, like that arpeggio. It blew my mind when they started playing that. Tune in, guys. Tune in. Remix this album, man. We need to remix it. <laughs> Melodyne, all the strings. Yeah, there's that melody. Again, it's these pulses when you hear this soloed. You hear how unusual those kind of pulses are, but it, it just again propels the music. And if you start muting that stuff, you really lose something in the mix. But you're not hearing it. You're not necessarily hearing it as a you know overwhelmed way. in this section as well we had a wonderful keyboard player called Zach who plays with Death Cab for Cutie one of Richie's close friends and he came in and did a lot of flute and keyboards that's right he also did this weird kind of sound manipulation where he just fuck with his pedals so not play anything and just make the pedals make different sounds and you can kind of hear them in this section like almost like a radio frequency coming in from another planet you know so why don't I open up the tracking session here so we can go through a few elements and see what's under the hood. Yeah, do you want to? Uh, one thing that's interesting is there's three drum sets on this song, which I think I Oh, yes. That's a, we should have talked about this earlier. Rich, is you're almost obsessive with, like, we need to set up a different kit for this section. I am definitely crazy about drum sets, yes. Crazy about it. Now, for our first five or six records, we didn't do anything like that, John, and on this record, we did it more than ever, and, and it's amazing how it changes the colour of a section of the song. And a song that cops it, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to achieve the dynamic of this song and the build without, I think we maybe even, we have one kit at the start, then there's a kit for the first few times, quiet times round, and then it goes to another kit perhaps, once it really gets going. So there's three kits within. Uh, we've got one kit for the main body of the, the intro up to where it breaks down. Then there's another kit of overdubs, it looks like. What are these? Let's have a listen to these. Are they Tom overdubs, it looks like? We have some of this going on in the chorus. Yeah. Builds off of what the live kit was doing. And again, it's just about accentuating what the band's doing and just, yeah, there it is, that's a cobble. And so this is with the main kit here. These were recorded in Hollywood. 
And then what happened is, as I'd mentioned, uh, we were at Abbey Road and got such a killer drum sound, we recut the breakdown section over there. So then it goes to this other drum set with a totally different sound for the and whole totally build. Different country. Different country. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Same player. That's the insane live room in Studio 2. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> I can't believe the Beatles got that room sounding dry for all those albums. <laughs> it's insane. Listen to this. Um, yeah. And then what happens is it goes from there. That's a different uh, snare. Right, and then it cuts to the L.A. kit again for the very outro. Love that. This is definitely not, a, that's not some easy shit to mix right there. No, I think that was, especially, <laughs> especially that bit at the end, it was easy enough to get the opening section, but coming out of that instrumental to that wee outro, it took a little bit of tweaking, didn't it? Yeah, Um but I've mixed six Mars Volta records, so I think I can handle just about anything somebody... <laughs> we could do a tape notes just talking about your experiences with the Mars Volta. <laughs> like fucking hell. Um, so there's some cool stuff in the intro here. We, we had the guitars already kind of knocking it out of the park, and then, I don't remember, we found a wah-wah pedal at the studio or something. Rick I Rubin's wah-wah pedal. Rick Rubin's wah-wah pedal. Wow. I think I accidentally lifted it from a session at Shangri-La. <laughs> The funny thing is, as well, is when we ever do anything, rather than put one wah guitar on a song, John, let's put three guitars doing wah. You know? <laughs> if it's good enough to do once, it's good enough to do a dozen times. That's the rule of thumb with a Biffy record. So then we have these sort of heavy, stabby ones here. This is sound pretty sweet. Um, and then you've got these guitars playing the main riff. This is a AC-30, a Black Bolt, and a JC-120. It's all sets kind of under that strat, yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, there's even more guitars down here. What are these? Oh yeah. That's I love your these. main guitar. That's the... And then... These particular guitars, it's the same thing. AC-30, Black Bolt, and a JC-120. They play throughout most of the section. Again, this is a section where the guitars are less distorted than you would think when you're listening. This uh, wah guitar is interesting because this is just the Marshall with one mic on it. It's just like, it's very focused. Love it. Some more black bolts down here. This sounds random, but there was a plan for all this stuff. It's not random. No, it was... We had to be quite focused on this one. It, it was. You always manage to get a flange on a fucking on our record, man. <laughs> so these are all the guitars for the chorus here. It's not much else, actually. It's just drums, bass, and guitars at this point. The thing is, we'll see... All those layers of guitars, Johnny, it's, the tuning is so important to make that all feel like one. 
if one guitar is slightly out of tune, it suddenly starts to wobble and the whole thing feels like it will fall. And in those moments where you there are five or six guitars, it's like they need to just still feel like one. So when you hear that part, it almost sounds like one guitar doing the part, but actually it's all kind of pieced together. Yeah. That's what the bass added in. So the bass is pretty straight ahead here. Yeah, because the bass and drums really are, are what propels this song. It's like, guitar is quite jerky. It's the boys singing like angels. And we got some gang vocals here. Can you hear me screeching in there, maybe right there? Uh, this is my favorite Simon lyric right here. I've been punching rainbows since 79. Mike, I'm going to get a t-shirt, a hat, the whole business with that. Well, it's funny you should say, because I have a wonderful merch idea, which is to have a t-shirt that says, I've been punching rainbows since, and then you get to put your year of birth on it. Do you like that? Yeah. Wow, that's good. That's really good. Uh, and so then, well, we go into this breakdown section. This is where it gets interesting. That's near. Some high-end guitar playing there. It's another one of these riffs that when I wrote it, I was like, <laughs> it sounds really good, but it's a fucking nightmare to play. That was Zach. It says it was through the Sun pedal. I think this was us. Was this us? This is Zach here. I don't know what that is. It just says nasty synth and it says sun amp. It's those little bits of chaos and mayhem next to the kind of prettiness of the section, which was important as well, you know. <laughs> Love it's bonkers. Quite Love something it. when you had that up loud. <laughs> I don't know what that is. And then these guitars come in here. Nice, clean. Actually, quite hard to play a guitar part like that. Takes a true professional. <laughs> right. We couldn't find one. <laughs> Actually, we got a few different questions from people for you via Instagram and via Twitter, and one of them comes from I Am Jam. What influenced the proggy mix section of Cop Syrup? So, what what inspired this this whole section? I mean, I do, it just the music just comes, John. I think at this stage, it's like it's about trusting your instinct, your own kind of taste level to a certain extent, and knowing when you're pushing it far enough. Whereas we were listening to like maybe a little bit of Janet Jackson and things when we were talking about instant history, just to see how we could kind of take the production. This is one of those songs. It was just a bit of a kind of vision, and it just was what it was. There was no specific reference to like. I mean, I know we mentioned Mars Volta there, but we didn't reference any records when we were recording it. We just knew it to be extreme, you know. I mean, to me, this whole section, it always struck me as almost like a pentangle or um, Fairport convention, especially with the harps accord in there, or almost like a, you know, Sid Barrett's first solo album. It has a bit of that kind of feel to it. And that's why Rich then suggested the acoustic, because I didn't necessarily hear that kind of reference. And Rich was like, you know, we could take this down a like that acoustic kind of prog thing. 
which is what the acoustic guitar and the flute does, because that's the first two flavors you hear. So straight away, you're taken to a different era. And especially after that punk rock section, I think it's important to reset it. These are some of the strings getting mixed in. Initially, this section was written actually as kind of a piece of music for a movie that I was working on actually, and it just didn't work out in the movie. So it had its shape before it became part of the song kind of thing. You can hear all the melodies. So, so somehow you got a Wawa guitar here. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, if there's one, there's another. There's another somewhere. <laughs> Hang on, maybe we have another, we have a whole new outro here cooking. I like that version. Yeah. There's a different mix of this album in there. We've just discovered that tonight, Rich. So if you're not up to much and you want to remix the album, we'll do that. Take all guitars and drums out and see what we're left with. I mean, with. <laughs> I'll do that when, when I'm much, much older. I'm just kicking around. I'll just start sending you new mixes of every album yeah, we've done no. together. We never quite cracked that. That's where you end up emailing. I'm like, fuck, I thought we did. There are a couple albums I feel that way about that someday I'm like, someday, I don't care if I'm 90, I'm going to get back to that record. <laughs> Hopefully our ones aren't those records. I don't no, 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 that. your albums are good, yeah. <laughs> it is interesting, though. I mean, somebody like Mike Oldfield keeps tinkering with his work, doesn't he? He keeps going back to it and thinking, no, I could do it in this way instead. Which is quite interesting because when we hear these kind of sessions on tape notes and we see the possibilities and, and also the layers and layers of material that goes into it, you, know, you could have endless possibilities, endless permutations of how this album could be mixed or you know, how it could be taken in a different direction completely. It's a dangerous game, that, though, I think, because inevitably six months or a year later you evolve somewhat or you hope to evolve somewhat as a human being you maybe hear different music you maybe have fresher ideas and i feel like if you start doing that you'll never complete any piece of work because that's kind of what keeps you moving next you know I, i'm hearing things there and i'm thinking oh that'd be quite interesting having string just violins and, mm -hmm. and screaming you know so straight away yeah. i'm hearing that and it's got my juices thinking oh that's maybe an idea for a song rather than necessarily create that from what we've created before you know so that's almost how i find my next path to kind of where the band goes next is like oh wow well, you know we could maybe you know expand upon that you know next you heard it here first the next biffy album all strings and screaming <laughs> strings and screaming who, i tell you what it's a strings and screaming kind of decade guys it is, it, it is. <laughs> very much so yeah i would be into that record well you'll be making it with me mother <laughs> i hope I mean, the album is called A Celebration of Endings, so it is about knowing when to stop and knowing how to finish something. So uh, that is an important element of, of any artistic practice. It is so. If you don't finish it, it I, I, don't, I don't consider it a piece of art yet. You know, like it's 
there needs to be a full stop to something and it needs to breathe. It needs to exist, you know, as well. And that's the thing about tweaking music. It's like, you keep tweaking it. Like Kanye was doing that with the life of Pablo. It's like, dude, make a decision. And, and that's actually the tough thing. When you're sitting down creating music or producing, working on a record, you've got every option under the sun you could do. Making the decision is actually the toughest part. That's where the work comes in. Is this song good enough? Does this song need this or that? It's like, without those decisions, it's just a bunch of fucking notes. Well, also, I, I think there are some artists who just coming to that point of closure and abandonment is very difficult for them for whatever reason. I mean, Da Vinci had that problem. He For years, he would never finish anything. He would have the same painting hanging around for 10 years. And unless somebody forced him to finish it, he would just never finish a lot of his work. I think that's a kind of self-preservation, isn't it? Without, like, If you don't finish it, you're not really asking for anyone's opinion or you're not asking for your own opinion yet, you know? Yeah, that's part of it as well, for it's, sure. Um, I like that, mentioning Da Vinci during a bit. <laughs> I like that, man. That needs, that needs to be the headline or something. Da Vinci and Biffy Clyro, come on. <laughs> it's interesting. We had a question from Luke Audio who wondered where the weirder lyrics come from, whether they come naturally. And you were saying, Simon, that some of the music, it just kind of appears, you know, and it just takes you in a certain direction. And he was wondering, um, with particularly to I'll Turn Your Baby Into Lemonade, uh, where does something like that come from? And where does, you no? Know, I've been punching rainbows since <laughs> whenever. You no, know. Well, believe it or not, it's, it's ridiculous because sometimes the more obscure lyrics actually do have a definitive meaning because they're the turning your baby into lemonade and that's that's a song called Little Hospitals. It was actually, you know, for a couple of years, me and my wife were maybe trying to start a family and things and things didn't necessarily work out, not to get too heavy about it. But then and you maybe see other people having family and actually it was taking the phrase lemons into lemonade, you know, like we, we've got lemons, but let's make it into lemonade. So that kind of lyric, they'll turn your baby into lemonade is actually kind of like, I'm going to love your baby, even though I maybe don't quite have that, you know, it's my lemon but it's your baby. <laughs> you know, I'm maybe not explaining that right, but that's actually one of my more kind of sincere lyrics, even though it sounds off the wall. And the punching rainbows, that's that came when, you know, as I've discussed before, a couple of relationships came to an end and I just I was just frustrated at shit. And I remember looking out the window in this room one day and seeing a rainbow in the sky and just thinking, ah, fuck, you know, like literally raging, looking at a rainbow and thinking, would anyone ever be mad enough to punch a rainbow? So everything's kind of rooted in a, a semblance of reality or, or an actual thought. It's maybe not quite as as esoteric as it comes across, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting what people pick up on, though, isn't it? And what hits home, be it, uh, you know, a melody or a, a sound or a lyric and how that kind of takes on another kind of resonance to somebody. And, and also, I, I'm quite guilty of sometimes if people ask about my song, I'll say, oh, this song's about this. And whenever I do it afterwards, I'm always thinking, you need to stop doing that because music is what the listener takes from it. You know, like, as you know, that line might mean something different to the guy that asked the question or mm. the girl that asked the question. And, and yet I've now made it definitively that's what it's about. And whenever I do that, I'm like, fuck. You know, it should be interpretable. You know, it doesn't mean it shouldn't have purpose. And I'm not a fan of people who just write lyrics just to fill in the fucking sound. I don't think that's valid, but equally people need to find their own way through the music. And and as a listener, I definitely, the lyrics will come slightly lower down the list for me. You know, I kind of listen to the vibe and then the melodies and things, and then I'll start thinking, right, let me get into whether I like this band or Axe lyrics. So for me, it's always surprising when people ask, because that's not necessarily the first thing I consider. 
and it's something that I'm still Rachel you know testified to I'm really nervous I'm, I'm not confident when I'm singing or my lyrics I'm always like are these all right man I need to write rewrite these you know and Rich was very supportive in this album and and gave me a lot of confidence because at points I was like oh I don't know could I say this better and Rich actually was been the first person to ever say to me maybe you could an ellipsis I think he said to me maybe you could say this sentiment in a slightly different way and it made me up my game when I was coming in for this album as well I was like right I want to make sure that I know kind of what I'm doing yeah yeah I got the impression that um, pre-production for this album was kind of more important like that as you were saying earlier you know the shape of the songs the structure of the songs for a lot of the songs you wanted to get that down before you started to spend all this time in studios and stuff because after the uh, experience with ellipsis you thought well that would be better we'd spend our time better if we prepared in a more intensive way first and, and that was just what i referenced earlier like there's so many options in a studio there's so many choices and on ellipsis you know i think half the songs rich we, we hadn't played as a band it was like they were just like the chords the right. melodies a couple of rhythms and it's fine to have a couple of songs like that like in this album it was instant history was the one we were trying mm. it but see when half the record you're unsure it I didn't enjoy it mentally. I'm, I love that record. You know, I wouldn't change anything about the record, but I can hear those moments where I'm like, yeah, I wasn't quite sure at the time, you know, and I felt that we all went in full of confidence this time. I think I was probably further on with the songs before I let Rich hear them. And I think we knew we had the spine of the record immediately. And then it was just those last few songs, you know, and Cops, it was, it was a song to crack, but we knew we would get there. You know, because it was like the song had to be a certain thing and it was like we will get there and it was just making sure the right think pieces were in place. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've talked about amps and mics and stuff. Uh, because I've got you here, I've got to ask the question that somebody got in touch about, Kean in Derry in Northern Ireland. He was intrigued by Weird Leisure particularly and what guitars and amps and mics were used on that song. And I know we've broken that down on the songs that we've talked about, but uh, just to keep Kean happy, it's important. Of course, I think it was. A, it would be a Stratocaster. Pretty much in most of this record, the Stratocaster is kind of hovering those, the harmonies and the notes. My full chords, my full kind of six-string chords come from the Stratocaster. I think we used a Les Paul in the chorus of this one, Rich. When it goes, that sounds possible. When it um, takes the step down, again, keeping it yes. all quite rock band centric. There's not a lot of on Weird Leisure that is kind of out with the confines of what we do as a, as a three-piece band, but getting those textures in the moments, it was quite a tough song to record. I think yeah. there's maybe five different tempos in the song. Uh, let's I have it open right now. There's actually quite a lot more than that. Right, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> interestingly, the, the chorus guitars are just the Marshall with the one mic on it. Marshall with one mic, brilliant. And it might have been the Kilt pedal... That's it. So yeah, so that's the bar chords that sit underneath, and then we've got a Stratocaster. We have this clean. So the clean Strat sits. And that's all we had. That's it. Four tracks. Four tracks of guitars. Obviously, the bass does a bit of heavy lift in there, and the church organ does a little bit of that scale. So. And there's some piano. Oh, is there in all the downbeats? Yep. What I would say to the, the person asking the question is if they record guitars, it's always tempting to add more guitars to a section to make it heavier. Like, 
add a piano note on the first beat of the bar, like just something cleaner that gives it that power. And it make, suddenly makes it sound as though there's so many guitars, but you're using a different instrument to give that moment, that pulse. And we did that quite a lot in this record. We, we tried to resist just putting layer upon layer of guitars. And, and again, it's Rich that's taught us that over the years because, you know, the more the merrier for me. What's this less is more shit? Um, <laughs> like, you know, Rich just knows, because it, it it's a different way of hearing things. Standing in a room playing a guitar is a lot different than hearing them through set speakers. So, yeah, I'm sure you had to pull my reins a little bit on that. And then in the guitar solo in Weird Leisure, I used the Sun drone pedal at Abbey Road. I did a version of the solo back in LA, and, the, and I think the pedal that we used just wasn't quite right. And I remember standing in the room where the Beatles played, doing a fucking solo on a Sun pedal, going, this is what life's all about. <laughs> as sad as that is. It's... And again, in this one, on the, on the outro, rather than just make it this big rock outro, we, I remember watching Wolf of Wall Street with Matthew McConaughey going, and it just, and it, <laughs> we ended up doing this vocal, which is like, oh yeah, that's right. Like, which is like the least heavy thing you could do at the end of a song. But again, it just it's just finding those different ways to say, I mean, we're a three-piece band, you know, like we need to find different ways to say things. And it's those little things rather than just full steam ahead, all distortion, all full riff. It's like, let's make something weird and ominous. And, and those influences coming from different places. Oh, there's some of the humming in there. Loving that humming. Um, so uh, Nathan was intrigued. This is one that maybe Rich can help out on. Um, intrigued to know, you know, how you get that consistent sound across the different styles of drums that you have on the record. I mean, you've explored that a little bit already, but you know, when you go from quite clean sounds to quite muddy sounds to you know, texture, you know, it's it's a tricky. What's business. muddy? What do you mean muddy? There's no muddy yeah. sounds. <laughs> what do you mean? There's no muddy. Don't use that word, John. <laughs> My slip up. <laughs> no it's so true that but all my friends have said that as well that everyone said see the variation and the fact that each thing has a similar impact and i want to hear you explain this rich because it's quite remarkable to make such an eclectic you know that is an eclectic rock album there's so many different sounds on it but each song has as much power and all the necessaries so it stands up to the previous song I mean, I would say the trick is to mix every song at least 10 times on at least two different consoles. Two consoles? You're not joking. That, that, that's both albums we've worked together. You've mixed the album on two different consoles because you got the second console and you're like, this just fucking sounds better. So probably that last roll of the dice that you make is probably what tips it over the edge from like being something that's really consistent to something that's actually like almost don't want to use a perfect word, but you know that way, like everything's fucking doing it. Yeah, I mean, I, you just like kind of keep chipping away at it. I don't know that there's uh, the way that everything is designed and recorded. It's supposed to have a particular place, even if the songs are completely different. They're designed to sort of fit together a certain way. And then uh, you just keep at it until they kind of lock in, you know. And sometimes, like like the first mix, you might go down a long rabbit hole with the first mix and think it's great, and everyone deals with this. You come back the next morning, you're like, shit, that's not as good as I thought it was, you know. And it is a different thing to mix uh, your own production than someone else's. That It's fairly challenging to do that. But the upside is that you can make radical changes in the mix phase without asking anyone's permission. 
Whereas if you're, because I spend a great deal of time mixing other people's productions and you you honor their work 100%. But when you're mixing your own production, you don't have to honor it. You can just flip the car over. And sometimes that's a bad idea, but uh, sometimes it also opens up a door. And I think that can be really important to have that kind of liberty during that that stage of a project. It's being fearless as well. That's one thing watching you work. It is willing to put in days of work, of intense work on something and having the nous and the bravery to say, no, let's try something else. And that's what whoever's asking the question, you know, it's like, if you go down an avenue, you know, don't be scared to come back. Don't be scared to just get rid of something. Don't be scared to just edit out parts. If it doesn't, you can try and fix it for a while. Some things are unfixable. Some things just aren't quite good enough and you have to choose another way. And But it's tough to do that. You know, that's a leap of faith. And I guess it's your expertise and experience over the years, Rich, that's allowed you to know that, hey, there could be something amazing around the corner. Because the first time you did that in Ellipsis to us, you're like, I've overhauled the mix. I remember going, what do you mean we've spent weeks working in this? You know, and, it, and we ended up, I forget what song it was, it might have been Friends and Enemies, and we ended up getting somewhere even better than I'd imagined. But in that instance, I was like, what do you mean we've un- you've undone it? You know, and, and it's, it's just that experience. And no, you know what, this is for the best, you know. There are a couple of questions we always ask people. One is, in theory, a fairly straightforward question in that, do you have a favourite piece of kit or equipment that you can't work without or you always turn to to solve problems from the different perspectives and the different roles that you occupy? I mean, do either of you have have such a thing? Other than coffee? (laughs) (laughs) That's true. That's very true. I have to say, I don't want to speak for Rich. Rich always has the new gear. Like we'll turn up and it'll be like, this, have you seen this? And you'll be like, I'm getting one later. I'm going to try it out and see if it works. So I'm sure you've got your go-tos, but you're also very explorative when it comes to new gear. Yeah. Um, what could you not do without? Jeez, I don't know. That's a, Well, you go first, Simon. With me, it's, I've found this, the perfect Stratocaster. It's as simple yeah. as that. I, I've spent years trying to get a studio Strat. It's by a fella called Michael Vaughn. Michael Landau? Michael Landau. Why do I fucking call him Michael? <laughs> Michael Landau. Um, Michael Landau, he is, well, he's not just a session guy. He's an unbelievable session guy. And he's brought out his signature guitar a few years ago. I got my hands on one and it's the best guitar I've ever used. And it's a Strat. It has everything you'd want. And I used it in pretty much every song in this album. I loved it so much. I bought an exact identical copy just in case anything happens. So that's my one go-to kit that I'll take wherever we're playing or recording. I've got my fucking guitar. I would say that for recording, the one thing that that I can't do without, and it's kind of a boring thing, but it's been life-changing, is uh, a long time ago I was doing this Franz Ferdinand album, and they were rehearsing in a house, and then we were going to switch to recording in the same house. So the idea is that we could do pre-production in the room and then we would have remote amps on the other side of the building. And then once the song was cooking, we would turn off the amps in the rehearsal room and turn on the other amps. So what we needed is a switching system so that you could plug your guitar in to a box that would feed a local amp and it would also feed an amp uh, 100 feet away. So I went to Pete Cornish, who's um, sort of a legendary guitar tech guru in the UK. He's done work with Brian May and David Gilmore and countless others. And he built these custom boxes for me. And then the only things that I've ever heard that you can plug a guitar into and you could have the amp half a mile down the road, it runs an XLR cable between the two boxes, and it sounds exactly like you're plugged directly into the amp. Length of a guitar cable can radically affect the tone. 
and Pete has something figured out. The boxes are all taped. If you open them up, you'll never repair them. So I don't know what's in them. Not, not that I would know anyway. But uh, those are absolutely mission critical. They have a phase reversals on all of them and mute switches. Um, when I bought them, they seemed expensive at the time. But I, there's not a single session that I've done since then where I don't use them. Wow. Amazing. Mission critical. What a great phrase. Um, I love <laughs> the idea that this is a mission. You know, every project, every album yeah, absolutely is, a mission, is a mission. And it's got to be done right and you are the people to do it right. I love that. Well, part of it also is, especially with the band like Biffy, that the it is a mission because the mission is not just to capture the material that they've written in a way that is uh, exciting for all of us in the room, but they have to go out and normally and tour that shit for like 18 months. And so you want to make sure that they have all the armament they need to go out there and have a successful campaign. And that means like in a song like Cop Syrup, you know what that's going to do in the room uh, when those guys are on stage. That feeling doesn't, that stays with me even during the production process. The other question we always ask is for advice. Do you have any advice you've received or any advice that you have arrived at that you would pass on to other people who are in music? Well, my tiny bit of advice, and I say to a lot of people, is just make sure if you start a band or start an act or start a project, make sure you like the music and like the people you're making the music with. That's the only thing you have within your control. You cannot control whether anyone else is going to like what you're doing. You can't second guess people. You can't have a five-year plan. In that moment, are you having fun? Do you enjoy what you're doing? Does it make you feel good? That's all we need to know from the music making side. You don't have to spend years learning. You can fucking make a sound, make a song with anything. And I just think if you're with your friends, and that's how we started, you know, at, at fucking 14 years old, none of us could play, none of us could do it, but we had the time of our lives, and that's why we're still fucking doing it. It's as simple as that. And picking up on that same thread, I would say that, um, especially if you're sort of like on your way towards putting yourself together, don't listen to other people's music so much and try to make it your own find out what you're interested in and amplify in particular what is unusual about your own point of view you know like i think of a band like system of the down it's a super weird band in the 90s for a long time they were playing all over los angeles and nobody would give them the time of day but they stuck to what they were doing you know it's Fiddler on the Roof meets Metallica. I mean, it's not exactly a recipe for success in the mid-90s. Um, uh, That's the base so, description of System of Data of So I feel like it's important to find something that you really believe in and feel is true to yourself and just amplify it as much as you can. Because you know what, as well, you don't get where rich is without working your fucking socks off as well as having the talent at it. And, and it's essential. You know, it takes a lot. It does take... You have to sacrifice a lot. So therefore, if you don't love what you're doing or it doesn't stimulate you, then you're going to be fucking miserable pretty quick, you know, in, in any side of music. You know, and the same for you, John. You know, it's like if you didn't enjoy what you're doing, you'd be fucking miserable. You could, and I'm, I'm sure this is one of your favorite nights of the week. You know? <laughs> but, but you know, Who's to say he could be miserable right now? He might be, I, know, I was thinking that. I was thinking, John's not smiling here. I've missed Justin. <laughs> but, you know, like it, it, there's points where I'm sure you want to tear your hair out with your work, but because you get the satisfaction of it, that's what keeps you coming back. It's not anyone saying well done or it's not fucking check at the end of the day. That's not what gives you the satisfaction, keeps you coming back for more. It's, it's the love of the game. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, a, a side issue, um, somebody, uh, Ollie, got in touch and he was wondering, how do you make the creative process feel fresh? Which is quite an interesting question 
that you touched upon a bit, Simon, in that you said you work on other projects all the time because it stimulates you, it makes you interested and it's something that feeds into Biffy, but it's also something else entirely. And Instant History was the example where that was something else, that was just something that you were trying out with somebody else for fun, for interest, and it wouldn't necessarily come into Biffy Clyro, but it did in this instance. Exactly. Um, There's certain parts of my brain, facets of my brain, that I probably wouldn't access if I was standing with my guitar on writing a song, you know, and thinking of introducing it to the boys and, you know, talking through the parts and things. I mean, it was after doing the double album opposites, I realised for me to keep things actually moving, I needed to, to stimulate myself in a different way. Opposites was my last kind of like, these are all, I've sat and written these all in the house. You know, that was the last day, and I think it almost killed me. And after that, I realised there's points I, I can't feel that pressure every time I sit down to write a song. You know, I need to feel liberated. And it's a blessing and a curse being in a successful band. It's like, I wouldn't want it to be any other way, but sometimes I just wish I could sit down and not think about the end result or playing it on a stage or whether fans will like it. And the only way I can do that is to go and work in these other projects because then I'm just not thinking about the execution of it. I'm just thinking purely in the moment. Does this bring me joy? Is this good? Yeah. I would say, I think also something that Simon does to keep it fresh is he listens to a lot of fucking weird music. And it's music that's necessarily affecting his writing process or anything that he would do in his band context. I'm probably the same way. We are inspired by things that aren't directly transferable to our day-to-day work, but they get us really, really excited about music. And to me, that's really critical. You were going through a mad, like, 40s blues phase when we first came over. Yeah. Like, you, you'd only listen to, like, you know, and we were about to work on a record that's the opposite of that, but that's what was inspiring you and giving you, like, that kind of, not motivation, but, you know, like, getting you going. And, and it, you're right, but you were never going to make that type of record that year, but that was what was stimulating your brain. Although we, the first amp we started to record with was a pre-war Gibson. That's right. It sounded amazing. Amazing. It sounded amazing. And we blew it up the first day. Before we even got a mic on, it wasn't. It was like, this is the best amp ever. It, sounded, it was so tactile and 3D and raw. It was um, magical. Yeah, sad. I know. What a shame. <laughs> Next album, man, will resuscitate and resurrect that bastard. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking all this time out to talk to us and and talk about a celebration of endings. It's been absolutely fascinating and uh, brilliant to dig in to these tracks and hear the stems and hear the demos and the different kind of spaces that you created them in. It's uh, been a real pleasure. Um, thank you very much for doing that. We've loved it, John. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, John. And I'm going to let you go and we'll play out with another selection of music from A Celebration of Endings. Um, is there any particular song that we could sail off into the night by listening to or whatever people might be listening oh, to? Do you want to end with Opaque? We'll end with a softer one. Oh, there you yes. go. After the beatings. Opaque will be a nice one. Excellent. This is it. This is Opaque. This is Biffy Clyro. Simon, Rich, thank you so much again. Thank you, Philip. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have a moment, do tell your friends and leave us a review. It all really helps. Thanks to those of you who have already donated to the show. I'm just one part of the team that brings you Take Notes. It relies on your support. If you'd like to donate, please head to our website. To ask a question on a future episode or find out who's coming up, 
Head to our socials and on Instagram you can see pictures from the recording sessions for each episode of Take Notes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. You took the money, you took the money and ran. But you could have made it right this time.